Welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. The Cover 2 Resources podcast is an ongoing series in which we interview experts in the fight against opioid addiction. It is made possible through donations and sponsorships from concerned individuals or organizations. If you want to help in the fight against opioid addiction, please consider donating or sponsoring the Cover 2 podcast. Go to cover2.org for more information. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover 2 Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil from Cover 2 Resources, and I'm here today with Dr. Nicole Labor who is the addiction medicine specialist in Akron, Ohio. And she works with the SUMA healthcare system, as well as quite a number of other service providers throughout Northeast Ohio. So, Nicole, welcome. Thanks. Dr. Labor, can you share with our listeners how you happen to get into the field of addiction treatment and recovery? I was addicted to, uh, well, to everything, but heroin was my primary drug of choice, which I was using... I I couldn't, I honestly can't say at this point for how long, but for quite a while. And it was in my third year of medical school that I um, really reached the bottom. Did you shoot? Yes. Okay. You were shooting up. Yeah. So I went uh, to treatment in my third year of medical school uh, with the understanding that I could return to school and finish as long as I followed through with all of the requirements of treatment. So I went to rehab inpatient, uh, at Marworth in Northeast Pennsylvania. Um, and then I did some outpatient, you know, treatment in Erie, Pennsylvania. I went to counseling and I was required to go to 12 step meetings and um, random urines with the state monitoring agency. And as long as I was doing that, I was able to go back to school. I finished thir- third and fourth year of medical school and went on to residency. And any, well, most physicians will tell you that you start medical school with some idea of what kind of doctor you want to be. And by the end of medical school, you choose the field that you hate the least. And so (laughs) um, for me, uh, there wasn't a whole lot of addiction medicine opportunities. And I thought that would be interesting and something that uh, would be good for me because I'm not, uh, because it's a field that requires you to be Um, very uh, honest and upfront and set good boundaries. And those were all things that I was working on in my own recovery. And so it seemed applicable to to working. So I did a An emerging field too. It it was. Yeah, it was an emerging field. Um, Mm -hmm. And at that time, I I think there was only maybe 13 fellowships in the whole country to do addiction medicine. Um, You could do addiction psychiatry, which is a little bit bigger of a field. But if you didn't want to be a psychiatrist, you didn't have as many options. So the treatment center where I actually went to get clean uh, was starting a fellowship. And so I went to residency in Buffalo for family medicine, graduated, 
um, got board certified in family medicine, and then was accepted to their fellowship at Marworth. So I did a year of fellowship in addiction medicine training at the same facility where I went to get clean five years later. So Um, now this was nine years ago? This was when I did the fellowship. I I got clean in 2005. Okay. And I graduated the fellowship in 2011. Okay. Gotcha. And you've been practicing ever since? I have been practicing ever since, yes. And so what is the opioid epidemic meant to you and your practice? What have you seen? We certainly have seen an increase uh, in the number of young people coming in for treatment because opiates take people down so quickly. They, they reach a bottom so quickly. Um, my biggest concern with the opiate epidemic is the focus on the single drug. Um, 10 or 15 years ago, there was a big problem with cocaine. They were calling it an epidemic. People were dying, having heart attacks. There was a lot of problems with pregnant moms. Um, And so there was a big focus on treating cocaine dependence. And then at some point in the the past, there was a methamphetamine problem, and we called it the meth epidemic. And um, so we put Sudafed behind the counter at Walgreens, and we made uh, Sudafedrin less available. And, you know, we focused on that drug. a few years back, you'll remember bath salts was a big thing, and people were eating people's faces and doing all kinds of bizarre things. And so there was a big focus for the government to make them illegal so they can't be stole, sold at gas stations and um, you know, develop urine drug screens for that specific drug. And I think the biggest problem is that we as a society never look at the problem, and the problem is addiction. And addiction is the same across the board no matter what the drug is. And the treatment is essentially the same with small small variations no matter what the drug is. And so by fixating on specifically opioids, uh, we're taking away the idea that addiction is a a neurological disease. And it causes problems because um, if you're focused on the opiates and you're focused on getting someone off an opiate, and they go to treatment and they are able to abstain from opiates, but then they start using something else, marijuana or alcohol or something they perceive as less offensive. Um, we have family and society going, oh, it's okay as long as he or she's not shooting dope. And we know in this field that that kind of behavior, just using any substance, will trigger a relapse. And so you know, getting the idea out there that addiction is a disease and once it occurs in the brain, once the change occurs in the brain, all substances really need to be avoided except in the most acute medical situations. And so I, I, I mean, I understand we have to focus on opiates because people are dying left and right. And, and again, it's a young population, which are in general harder to treat. Um, but I think that the focus needs to be on this idea that addiction is a disease that has nothing or very little to do with the actual substance, and and we need to focus on treating that. In your presentation, speaking of addiction, mm-hmm. you talk about how there's an addiction gene, and mm-hmm. some people have it, some people don't. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have it, you know you're you're not necessarily going to go down that road. Can you comment on that? Sure. Um, I am not a geneticist and I am not a molecular biologist, so I'm not going to pretend to understand genetics. But um, essentially, we have multiple addiction genes. There's multiple genes um, with multiple sort of activating triggers. So, for example, you might have uh, several addiction genes and one of them is turned on by 
or activated by 700 uses of methamphetamine. And I might have several addiction genes and one of them is activated by two drinks of alcohol. We don't know which we have. We don't know which one is triggered by what or how much. Um, but once the gene is turned on, the changes in the brain occur. And once the changes in the brain occur, the substance no longer matters. And so the vast majority of people have some addiction gene. They have some um, form of the addiction gene. There are people out there that don't have any. And I, I, I think, we think, um, Perhaps the, they have one that's very obscure and not easily turned on. I don't know. Mm -hmm. But a, a huge majority of people do have some addiction gene. So, but the myth out there is, yeah, a lot of people have it, but, you know, I, I don't. Well, my family doesn't have it. No, not, not us. When really, if you dug a little deeper, apparently that isn't the case. Most families have it, you're saying. I'm saying that I, in my experience, I most do. I mean, we certainly have our, I see my fair share of addicts that, you know, are unable to identify any family history. You know, family history is very important, obviously. It helps us uh, really. If you have a strong family history, the likelihood of you becoming addicted is very high. Um, if there's no family history, though, we still see people become um, addicted. Is that because of a mutant gene, perhaps a gene mutated along the way? I, of course, that's possible. Again, I'm not a geneticist. Um, but if you become addicted, you have the gene. That there's no way around that. So if most people have the gene, then what advice would you give for those that want to socially drink or socialize? That you're taking a risk. It's always a risk. Uh, I, I wish there was a way for me to say that without sounding like some sort of crazy, you know, um, purist, um, because I, I personally have nothing against that and socializing and using substances. Um, but it, it is always a risk. And I think that if you have a gene that's going to be activated by a small amount of alcohol use, you could potentially become very alcoholic or, you know, and then eventually something else. But um, I think that what's really important would be um, before you are using uh, alcohol uh, or even marijuana, which is obviously used pretty recreationally as well, um, really evaluate whether or not you have appropriate coping skills in life. So if your only coping skill for a stressful situation, a bad day at work, a fight with your spouse is to go have a drink or two or to get high, that puts you at much higher risk because once you're using chemicals as your coping skill, it's very hard for the brain to recall other coping skills, ones that require more action, more behavior, more time. And once the brain gets a taste of that instant gratification, it doesn't really want anything else. So in one of your presentations, you talk about there's no difference between drinking alcohol and using heroin for the addict. Can you share that perspective? Um, once the... Once the change occurs in the brain, and it's in the area of the midbrain, which is kind of a primitive area of the brain, what happens is when you use a substance, any drug, uh, it, it enters your system, it crosses into the brain, and it binds to a, a brain cell, and that brain cell releases chemicals like dopamine, which is the primary pleasure chemical. And the dopamine is what actually causes the effects. So whatever it is, it's the same dopamine no matter what drug you're using. So the dopamine is released, you feel joy, pleasure, relief, whatever it is that you're seeking, the alteration in your mental status. And so it becomes the dopamine that we're addicted to. That's what we continue to crave over and over and over. And so 
what that means is that it doesn't matter which chemical you used in order to release that dopamine. It's the dopamine the brain wants. So for the recovering addict that is an opioid addict, mm -hmm. the concept of, well, you know, I can have a beer or two with the boys, that gets thrown out the window. Absolutely. And, and absolutely, alcohol, marijuana, benzos, any drug, even drugs that you've never used in your entire life are off the table for a recovering person because they will all release the same dopamine that your brain was getting from the opiates or whatever your drug of choice was. And so if the brain just gets a flood of dopamine, it doesn't know that you drank alcohol versus you used um, opiates. You know, because the conscious part of you knows what you actually used, but the brain where the disease occurs doesn't know. And when that disease is active, it will drive the person to continue to seek out dopamine. And in a state of, um, well, let's say the person's drinking because they're out with their friends and they're being social, well, now you need alcohol to be social. So what's gonna happen when something stressful happens in your life? The brain's going to require higher levels of dopamine, and you're going to seek out your original drug of choice, and you wind up relapsing on, on opiates. So if you've been good for 10 years, then at that point, it's safe to go on and have a drink or two every now and then, right? Nope. Once a cucumber's a pickle, it's never a cucumber again. So once the brain is broken, it can never go back. So in your presentation, you also use this fictional character by the name of Uncle Marty to make a point. Tell us, can you introduce us to Uncle Marty? Sure. Uncle Marty is that guy that comes to Thanksgiving dinner and tells you, I used crystal methamphetamine for 10 years every single day and my life was a mess and I just put it down and walked away and never touched it again. Just said no. Just said no. All you need is willpower. Um, and I say Uncle Marty makes my life difficult because every addict wants that. That's every addict's dream, to just be able to put it down and walk away and never have to use it again. Um, but... One of two things generally has happened in the case of Uncle Marty. One, the crystal meth or methamphetamine didn't activate his addiction gene, and therefore he doesn't have changes in the midbrain. He was just using the drug over and over to get high, to feel good, whatever, um, but he didn't actually become addicted to it and therefore could put it down and walk away. Um, or option two is that he did use it to the point of changing his brain, and he just is now drinking every day, but he doesn't acknowledge the drinking as problematic because it's not an illegal substance. So usually one of those two things has happened in that case. Okay. So changes in the midbrain, that leads to a broken frontal cortex? Changes in the midbrain lead, no, changes in the midbrain lead to a broken sense of pleasure and inability to experience pleasure at a normal rate. So normally you get pleasure from, you know, winning a lottery or going on vacation. Uh, when your midbrain is broken in this sense, in addiction, you can no longer experience joy from those things because not enough dopamine is released anymore. Your brain needs the higher levels of dopamine um, from the drugs. The frontal cortex is, is the part of your brain that's conscious, that makes you you. It's your values, your personality, your spirituality. That's everything in your frontal cortex. That becomes weakened by a midbrain that's constantly active. So your midbrain's constantly driving you to survive by getting more drugs, and the frontal cortex becomes weaker. Okay. Um, I think that there is probably a misconception out there that um, rehab and recovery is a matter of finding the best facility, and maybe in 90 to 120 days, you're out and you're good. 
Can you speak to that and, and speak to a couple of things on that? Number one, um, how long does it take to recover from really long-term recovery from, enter into long-term recovery from opioid addiction? And probably number two, we'll get to this in a minute, but selecting where to go. Mm. Uh, in this field, you know, we have a tendency to say that uh, somebody can get clean in a paper bag if they want it badly enough. So um, one of the key ingredients for somebody getting well is a clear sense of desperation, a clear desire to do whatever it takes to get well. You know, if there's a component uh, in the addict's brain that's still saying, well, I don't really want to have to do that or I really don't want to have to do this, um, they're, they're probably not going to get well no matter where they go. It doesn't matter how great the facility is. Um, obviously, there are some, you know, very well-known, excellent facilities like Hazelden and Betty Ford and um, I, Marworth, my close to my heart in, in Pennsylvania, um, Talbot. You know, these are some like well-known, well-respected treatment centers that are very long-term. Uh, I personally work at IBH here in Akron, and I think that's an excellent facility. I think any facility that focuses on educating um, clients and having group therapy, having individual therapy, um, and really promoting some kind of spiritual growth is uh, is a good program. Um, I've I know of some facilities that um, have not a great reputation. Perhaps there's a lot of court ordered people there, a lot of drugs there, whatever. But I know I have patients from those facilities who have nothing but good things to say because that's where they got clean, because that was the point in their life they were desperate enough to do whatever they were told. So even facilities that other people say, oh, that place is terrible, it's gross, it's horrible, were able to help somebody. So a lot of their uh, ability to recover and enter into long-term recovery really comes down to them. What's the family's role in this whole process? Because this is a family disease, right? It is a family disease. Um, but a, a big part of why it's a family disease, though, is because the family s starts to focus on the addict the way the addict focuses on drugs. And so the addict becomes the family's drug of choice. And so their they, wellness, their recovery, their everything day to day about them. living, yes. everything, keeping them out of trouble, keeping yep. them yep. As alive. A, as a parent, you generally, while you're, you have a child that's using, you're, you become their probation officer and their overbearing helicopter parent, and you're monitoring their bank accounts and sleeping with your keys and your bank card in your pillowcase and you're checking their phone bills and, you know, doing all these things that are not normal behaviors. They're very codependent behaviors because you want to keep your kids safe. You're afraid. Uh, once your kid is clean, uh, you feel a little bit of relief, but there's always that little bit of anxiety in the back of your mind. Is he really tired today from work or did he use something? Is there really, you know, is he really stressed about that? Or did, you know, there's always that question in the back of your mind. And that is actually part of your disease as a family member. So as a family member, your role is to take care of yourself. It is to learn how to, um, to properly care for yourself so that you are in the best possible position to either be supportive of your addict while they're getting well or to be supportive of yourself when they're not because people die from this disease. They, they do every day. And unfortunately, there's no way around that. If they're not ready to get well, nothing you do as a family member is going to change that. I wish that it, it could. But the part of their brain that values you 
is that weakened frontal cortex. And so if they're not working on strengthening that, then it doesn't matter how much you love them, your love will not keep them alive. So as a family member, I, I always encourage you get treatment as well, whether it's through a 12-step program for family members or a lot of treatment centers do offer family counseling and, you know, um, sort of to help while they're treating your addict. Some programs even offer just family counseling for addicts. Um, I think that is the most important thing you have to because one of the things we teach addicts when they're in treatment is you have to learn how to take care of yourself you have to put yourself first you can't fill others cups from an empty cup etc same thing for the family member you are no good to your addict if you don't even know how to take care of yourself and there's also family coaches and mm -hmm. organizations like narconon yes yes that enter into play here yeah well Nar yeah. narconon it would be like your um, 12, 12 step, step right. like right, Al-Anon. Right, right. yeah, yeah. yeah. And I'm a huge proponent of those programs. Huge proponent. Uh, I think families sometimes get discouraged because they go to one of those meetings and they're hoping that someone there is going to teach them like how to fix their addict mm -hmm. and like what the secrets are to like get them to stop using. And they, they quickly realize that this isn't about the addict. It's about us. Right. It's about us as the family needing to get well. Yeah. Okay. Um, there's a, de a debate between those that believe that abstinence is the only way to long-term recovery, and those that are staunch supporters of medicated-assisted uh, treatment. Mm -hmm. Can you weigh in on that? Your thoughts? Sure. My thoughts um, are that it varies based on the individual. And to say that one treatment is better than the other in a blanket statement, I think is, um, I think it's pretty ignorant. Uh, I think that everyone is going to have uh, a different journey into recovery, and some of them will require medication. Um, you know, people argue that medication is just like using a crutch. It's just a crutch. You're just replacing one drug with another. Um, and as a chemical dependency treatment provider, I don't believe chemicals are the cure for chemical dependency. Um, but I do believe that if I break my leg, I need a crutch. I need something to lean on while my bone heals. I still have to go to physical therapy. I still have to meet with my surgeon. I still have to do all of the things that I have to do to get my body to heal. But while that's happening, I need to lean on something. And for the majority of people on medication-assisted treatment, that's what it does. It gives their midbrain the chance to quiet down so that they can work on that frontal cortex. They can go to group. They can go to treatment. They can really gain the skills they need, the coping skills without chemicals. Um, some people do wind up on medication for life. Some people, they they just, it doesn't matter how, how, how much they work on their frontal cortex. It's not enough. Um, but some people wind up in a wheelchair when their leg is broken. Some people wind up with a prosthetic leg. So just because you're on crutches doesn't mean you're always going to get off of them. Um, but there are a, a lot of people who abstinence is more appropriate for. And, and regardless if you're on medication-assisted treatment or not, all other substances are still off the table. So, you know, I mean, if you're using a medication for opioid dependence such as buprenorphine, you still shouldn't be using Xanax and cocaine and alcohol and marijuana you still should be abstinent from all of those other substances, you know. And um, the, the problem I think people have with the medication-assisted treatment is that a lot of places, um, specifically physicians that prescribe it, are not doing it correctly. They're doing it where basically you come in, they hand you, you hand them cash, they hand you a prescription, they tell you to have a nice day. They don't really look at your 
the big picture of your life, they don't really encourage or enforce that you're doing other things. And that's unfortunate because that's what the addict wants. The addict wants the easiest thing. Just give me the drug and leave me alone. Right. And so basically those physicians out there are just enabling people. And then those patients come to me because, of course, they wound up using something else and, they're, and then they relapsed and their lives become chaotic all over again. And I say, well, you have to go to intensive outpatient. You have to go to counseling. You have to go to 12-step meetings. And they're like, well, that's not fair. My last doctor didn't have to, you know, and then I have to break it all down again and explain the concept and, and the addiction and why they need to do this. You know, my experience is that after a few years on a medication, um, I have just as many people who uh, who are working an abstinence-based program as I have on medication that are clean, and it, and those people are the people that are engaged in recovery. Okay, by engaged in recovery, uh, I think. Don't let me put words in your mouth, mm-hmm. but I think you're really referring to they have all aspects kind of covered. So they've kind of got a team, if you will, Mm -hmm. involved in their recovery. And the team could involve their family, group, and individual counseling, spirituality in their recovery. Yes. And spirituality is actually the the key component. You know, people balk at the idea of it because somehow they associate spirituality with religion and they're not the same. Um, Explain. Um, spirituality occurs in a different part of your frontal cortex than religion does. Religion is a very um, structured, organized idea. Um, spirituality just has to do with um, finding your place within the universe, um, accepting that there, you know, there are forces in the universe bigger than you are. Um, I personally can't stop Hurricane Matthew going on right now. Therefore, Mother Nature is more powerful force than I am. I have to accept that. That in and of itself is the beginning of a spiritual idea. Um, that part of the brain where spirituality occurs is the part of the frontal cortex that we find, if it is activated regularly, is strong enough to overpower the midbrain. It's strong enough to overpower a midbrain, which is actively using. And so, um, of course, they didn't know that uh, Wow. So your spirituality can overcome those cravings, that addiction, that strong desire that overrides everything else. Spirituality is going to trump that, so to speak. It can, yes. With with active um, practice and engagement, mm-hmm. you know, and, and there's an understanding that that takes work, that takes writing, that takes speaking with other people that have gone through the process. It's not a matter of reading a book about spirituality or going to church once a week. I mean, that's not spirituality. Um, I say to people, you know, if you could go to like Tibet and live with a monk for a year and like in silence and really just do some self-exploration, that might be sufficient. That might be enough spirituality for you to really quiet down your midbrain, provided that you can live out the rest of your life based on whatever principles you learned during that year. Um, But we do know that spirituality is actually one of the most powerful components for overcoming um, addiction. Yeah. So it's probably the most important but that isn't to neglect all these other components that have to come together to make this happen. No, but most addicts are not going to look for spirituality or find any comfort in it until they get through all the other stuff too. Well, so it's the last one in line. Yeah, it is. It's the last one in line. You and you can't. You know, an addict is not real good at looking at themselves, and so they need to be around other addicts, and that's what group therapy and the meeting fellowshipping is about, because. I am super good at telling you what's wrong with your life and what you're doing wrong. I'm very intuitive that way. And you are very intuitive about telling me or seeing my life objectively. But neither of us is very good at seeing ourselves. Hmm. 
So that's the purpose of, of working. So you need group support. You need people to call you on your, you know, whatever's going on for you in your head that they can see. I mean, that's what recovery is about. Yeah. In one point in your presentation, uh, you shared something that just struck me as so particularly profound. You said, the gift of recovery is learning from other people. You get to stand on the shoulders of giants. Tell us about that. Well, I, I, I often say that when I speak. Um, I say that, you know, uh, Albert Einstein and, and Isaac Newton, they, you know, came up with the theory of relativity and talked about gravity and physics, but they didn't go back to one plus one. They didn't start at one plus one with basic math and work their way up. They trusted the work of their predecessors. And um, addicts, uh, we tend to be really stubborn. We tend to be really controlling. We really have this intense desire to control everything about our environment. And so um, the gift of recovery is being able to let go of that control and say, you know what, I'm going to learn from your mistakes. You, if you come to a meeting, in a 12-step meeting that I'm at, and you share with me about how you had eight years clean from heroin and you drank a glass of wine, and then six months later you drank another glass of wine and you thought, oh, I'm fine, I can drink, and then within two years you were using heroin again, I have the choice now. I can go home and, and assume I'm going to be special, different, and unique from you, and that I personally will be able to continue to have one glass of wine twice a year, or I can trust your experience and say I'm not even going to have that first one because I don't want to wind up where you are back in the room having just gotten clean again. Um, those are the kinds of experiences we have the opportunity to learn from. That's got to be a huge milestone to get to that point. How, do you recall how long it took you to get to that point, that, that trusting point? Because look, you're a very intelligent woman, and, and so you're in a room with a bunch of other people, and you know it, it, it would be a natural tendency to feel like, you know, I'm smarter than a lot of these people. Why am I listening to this nonsense? Mm -hmm. So, But it's critical that you get over that hump and you get to the point where you realize that, hey, these people have, they are further up the mountain than me. So how long did it take and how did you do that? I, I couldn't pinpoint it exactly. I want to say definitely more than a year. Um, and I, that was exactly me. And my understanding today is that the smarter you are intellectually, the harder it is for you to get well because you want to believe you can read every book and learn everything there is about the disease and therefore you're cured um, versus having to just take simple direction. Um, so I did go to meetings and I did, you know, read the book and spout it out and, and sound very articulate like I was this, you know, guru of recovery, but I wasn't internalizing any of it. I wasn't listening to other people. And, and like you said, I thought I was better than everybody. And, um, and so uh, what it took was uh, for me to recognize that after, you know, about a year of not using, I was still pretty miserable. And... Uh, I was, you know, fortunate enough that I was being monitored, you know, through school and the state and I would not be able to become a physician if I ever went back out and relapsed and I had tons of school debt and mm. would have had no way to pay it back. And, Plenty of leverage. Yeah. Kind of like the drug court leverage. Similar. Yeah. yeah. Similar. Different thing. but yeah. So, yeah. So that was kind of enough for me to continue to not use but um, it wasn't until I was in I was in a meeting and there was a woman there that shared a very simple story, nothing spectacular about you know losing her purse at the dry cleaner, and the way that she told it was so um, she was so vulnerable, she was so brutally honest about herself, 
And it was, uh, I don't, it was just that moment that I guess, you know, the universe decided my brain could be opened a little bit. And I heard the honesty. And that was something that was really missing from my life was just that pure, unadulterated honesty. And so I asked that woman to be my sponsor because they tell you to get a sponsor. And I'm like, fine, I'll do whatever you tell me. Um, and that turned out to be the, the best thing that ever happened to me because she and I were so very similar in terms of not our lives, but our personalities and our, our disease states, our character defects. And so she was able to guide me through the process of recovery as my sponsor. And that's what a sponsor is supposed to do um, until I got to the place where I had some acceptance, you know. The, the 12th step in a 12-step program says, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we carry the message and practice these principles in all our affairs. So essentially, the 12th step basically says, if you work 1 through 11, you're going to have some spiritual growth. And once you get that, you're going to feel good. So now it's your job to go give that to somebody else. And you've done that in a big way. Well, I try. Yeah. You go around giving presentations and... And I still go to meetings. I have 11 and a half years clean. I have a sponsor. I go to meetings. How often do you go to meetings? I try like, to go to... spot. Well, no, that's okay. At this point, I try to go to maybe um, two a week, one to two a week. Wow. Mm -hmm. That seems like a lot. Oh, God, no. Uh, I have patients on detox right now who had, you know, over 30 years sober. Hmm. And they relapsed. And I ask what happened. And they say, I stopped going to meetings. How long? About six months. Boy, that's so important. That's that, I mean, that kind of illustrates how important that is. It's lifelong. This is It's like being a diabetic and then saying my blood sugars have been outstanding for 10 years. I think I can stop taking my insulin. Um, we hear a lot about people, places, and things mm -hmm. and changing them, avoiding them. Mm -hmm. Can you comment on that? Sure. The other neurochemical in the brain that we deal with in addiction is glutamate. And glutamate is a, an abundant chemical in the brain, and what it has to do with is memory formation. So whenever you have a pleasurable experience and you release that pleasure chemical dopamine, glutamate is also released, and it lays down a memory. So this is why you go to the same place on vacation with your family because you had such a great time the, the year before. Um, this is also why when you're packing for that trip the next year, you're getting excited because glutamate reminds you that even packing for that trip is, uh, is going to lead to a good time. And um, so when people are using drugs and alcohol, uh, glutamate is laying down memory of that pleasurable experience because the dopamine is released during that experience. So if you're sitting in the bar and you're drinking alcohol, you're getting a ton of uh, dopamine released. Glutamate is saying this bar is associated with all of this this or this dopamine. So they the brain comes to associate the people at the bar, the bar, the parking lot, driving past the bar with getting high levels of dopamine and pleasure. So um, if you go to the same dealer's house, you drive down the same street to go to your dealer's house, you, you know, even something, things as, as simple as looking at um, your phone, you know, the text messaging, the messenger app um, is associated with uh, my dealer. And so glutamate lays down memories. And so that means that even when you put the drugs down and you become abstinent for a period of time, Driving down the road where your favorite bar was or driving past your dealer's house can sometimes uh, sort of initiate a craving um, 
a bit of euphoric recall, they call it, where some dopamine is released and you say something about being here is making me really like anxious and, and I don't know what to do and I, I feel restless and irritable. And if you don't recognize that that is your brain trying to get you to go use again, because that's what it wants, more dopamine. Hey, I got a little taste of it just driving by this bar. I want more. And so maybe we should go in, you know. So people, places, and things is absolutely paramount to staying clean because if you're constantly triggering your brain by being around the same people and and things that got you high or got you, you know, intoxicated in some way, um, you're you're going to use again. They, you know, in the in the rooms they talk about, you go to the barber shop enough times, eventually you're going to get a haircut. You hang around with people that trigger your brain enough times, eventually you're not going to be strong enough to be able to say no, I'm not going to use. Sure. Um. So, Nicole, if uh, if you had no resource limitations, mm -hmm. what would you do to revolutionize treatment? Well, I would develop a all-inclusive treatment center. And for me, it, it's a very much a sort of hub and spokes um, treatment center. It would be one building or one campus where every type of treatment is available as well as resources needed for addicts in, in particular. So a main hub where you get assessed and then a detox unit and then a partial hospitalization program, an intensive outpatient program, a regular outpatient program, a residential treatment facility, um, a methadone and, and buprenorphine clinic. Vivitrol. Uh, and vi absolutely. Um, uh, Vivitrol uh, can be included there, but it can also be included in the uh, family practice. There would be a small family practice clinic for addicts and families to continue to go to even after they're done with treatment so that they stay linked in and that their provider is aware of all of their issues. There would be psychiatrists on staff. There would be um, uh all the different modalities that we know about that help, the equine therapy, work therapy, mm, equine with therapy. horses. Yeah. yeah. There's a lot of studies on show that it's very therapeutic um, for addicts to work with horses. Huh. Um, there would be music therapy, art therapy. It would basically, mm. your inpatient and outpatient scheduling would be set up very like, very much like college with a syllabus. You choose uh, which, which courses are going to be, a per, you know, pain management sessions, um, you know, art therapy sessions, things that you feel are going to be appropriate. So that, so the client, the patient has some say in what they think will help, but they will have to choose from things that we know work. And then we would have sober housing on this outskirts of property. So some transitional housing, three quarter way housing, halfway housing, and just sober housing. Um, and it would all sort of be inclusive in one, one place, one area, um, that's well designed to keep the newly using addicts from the recovering people so there's not a lot of crossing boundaries. You know, we have people bringing in uh, oh, yeah. drugs. That's a very good point. Sure. Yeah. Sure. So it would be designed in a way that, that there's some communication in terms of therapeutic communication, but it's not, there's not a lot of crossover. So there would be lectures every day and there would be education every day and there would be group therapy every day. And, um, you know, and the residential, all of the programs combined would probably total about a year, um, maybe starting out with residential for 30, 60 or 90 days, moving into a partial hospitalization program for, you know, 30 days, then an IOP and stepping down appropriately to each level of care until you can get into sort of sober transitional housing, which would then allow you to 
reintegrate into society appropriately while still being able to come back to that safe place, that campus, and still get some education, still get meetings, still get support. Um, and your physician will be there, you know, so you, so when you have a medical problem, you can go there, there'll be pain management on site, you know, non-narcotic pain management therapies available. Um, and um, that to me would be like your ideal uh, treatment facility. I and mean, right now everything's very piecemeal. And that's not just here. I mean, that's not to knock Akron. We actually have here in Akron quite a few really good facilities. I mean, our tr even though people say, oh, it's so hard to get in and the access is hard, we actually have better access than anywhere else. So I didn't um, realize that. Yeah, it's pretty it's pretty difficult to access treatment for most people, primarily because of the insurance companies and the government not forcing them to pay for it. But um, they um, so we we everyone's doing a separate sort of special, you know, area. So we do detox here at St. Thomas. Uh, we have an IOP at St. Thomas. We're starting a partial, but we have no residential treatment here. You know, um, we don't, we have uh, some outpatient medication assisted treatment with buprenorphine, but there's no methadone clinic here. And the community health center has methadone and buprenorphine. They have intensive outpatient and individual mm -hmm. counseling. Edwin Shaw has an intensive outpatient program and individual counseling, and they do Vivitrol. And, you know, so we have all the IBH is inpatient, primarily abstinence based. Raymar is inpatient, but they'll, they do medication assisted treatment. So we have all of these places that are piecemeal. Mm -hmm. And addicts in general, I'm sure you are aware, you know, the, very few go to one treatment and they're good. Right. So relapse is a part of recovery. Relapse can be a part of recovery. Relapse does not have to be a part of recovery. There are addicts that do not relapse and they're still in recovery. Um, but but just because you relapse, that is not a failure. Relapse is just a, a point of learning. It is a lesson. What did I do wrong? Where did I go wrong? What can I not do again in the future to not relapse again? So it's, a, it's an important part of growth in terms of your recovery if you don't die from it. But it's not necessary to, to relapse, but it is a part of your, your journey. And so... Um, but most of the time, so they'll come to our detox unit and we'll say, now follow up with X, Y, and Z. And they won't do that because they all think they know better. And mm -hmm. they wind up relapsing. And then maybe the next time they go to the Alcohol, Drug, and Mental Health Board and detox there. And they don't get records from us because they're only there a couple of days and their commu you know communication is difficult. And so then they, they detox there and they recommend X, Y, and Z. And maybe they do part of an IOP at, at one facility and then drop out. And then we recommend this. So they're, they're hitting all of these facilities and none of us are able to effectively communicate to sort of um, direct this person to where they need to go. Whereas if it were all under one roof, if you were in my, my magical facility that I created in my head um, and you were doing, say, intensive outpatient and you were continuing to use, well, I refer you right up to partial hospitalization in the same facility. So now it's a little more intense. You have a little bit more accountability. You're doing a little bit. And if you're still relapsed, well, I refer you right up to the next level of care, which is residential. And, you know, then you move back down through them. And you do away with a huge problem. And that is you have somewhere in the neighborhood of 35 to 40% drop off between service providers every time they and somebody off. Mm -hmm. And this was uh, a uh, quote from someone that I did another podcast with. And I, I, I suspect it's pretty close to that number. So, Doctor, I, I really appreciate the time that you've uh, spent with us today. This has just uh, been illuminating, to say the least. Um, what final thoughts 
would you like to share about the opioid epidemic in general and long-term uh, recovery for our listeners? Well, like I said earlier, you know, uh, the opioid epidemic needs to be redirected to the addiction epidemic, which has been going on for a very, very long time. Um, uh, in general, people need to just um, follow direction. You know, we need to, I, the addiction wants people to die. Addiction wants addicts to die. And the addiction is in the brain. So that means by nature of the disease, the addict is going to want things that the disease wants. And as family members, we uh, have a tendency to really want to help that person. And so we help them seek out those things they want versus the things that they need. Um, so getting specialists on board, getting assessments and following direction. I mean, that is really paramount. And my experience as a provider has shown me that the more uncomfortable someone is with a particular type of treatment, the more likely that is to help them. So the people that are absolute, absolutely against 12-step meetings absolutely need to go to those 12-step meetings. People that are adamant that they can't go to inpatient when that's what's recommended are the people who would do best if they went to inpatient. Um, you know, it, in order for someone to get well, they have to have a willingness to do whatever it takes. That doesn't mean they have to want to. It doesn't mean they have to like it but they have to be willing to. And if they have that willingness, um, then, it does, then it ultimately doesn't matter what kind of treatment you're using, they're going, they, they can get well. And time may be of the essence, dependent upon the substance of choice for their addiction. And for this, I'm kind of going back to, again, your presentation, because you talk about alcohol being a Schwinn mm -hmm. and heroin being a Maserati. Mm -hmm. Speak to that. Uh, well, the changes in the brain, um, you know, occur over time with specific amounts of dopamine released in the midbrain. And we know that opiates and methamphetamine and cocaine release much higher amounts of dopamine than alcohol. So the change occurs more slowly when you drink alcohol. But ultimately, they're all arriving at the same place. You're, no matter what substance you use, you're going to arrive at the place where your life is in shambles, your relationships are a mess, your finances are a mess, your career, your hopes, your dreams, your spirituality and your emotional ability to deal with life are at an absolute bottom. We call it the hole in the soul through which the cold north wind blows. And when that hole is big enough that it's affecting every area of your life, that's when you're at a bottom. That's when you're ready. And that happens more quickly with substances like opiates. And so um, to arrive at that hole in the soul, opiates are like the Maserati getting you there. And alcohol is like the Schwinn bike getting you there. One's just going to take longer. You know, but the longer it takes, the more damage it causes along the way anyway. For opiate addicts, essentially, they're using opiates, they're otherwise in a healthy state, and then they overdose, stop breathing, and die. Um, for alcoholics, they're drinking alcohol, they're going through life seemingly okay for a while, and then things start to fall apart. But in the meantime, they're causing liver damage, kidney damage, brain damage, heart damage, lung damage. And then when they arrive at the hole in the soul, there's a whole lot of damage done to the body. And it's more difficult to recover because physically you have all these limitations now. So either way, it's a, it's a terrible way to go, either way. Thank you. Mm -hmm. We've been visiting today with Dr. Nicole Labor, who's an addiction medicine specialist in Akron, Ohio, working with many of the major uh, treatment providers here in Northeast Ohio. My name is Greg McNeil. I'm the founder of Cover Two Resources. 
Thank you for joining us for this podcast. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. With your support, the Cover 2 team can continue to research and broadcast these resources to others in need. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.